0: Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome, grace and peace to you. 12 15 to 26. Now if the foot should say because I'm not a hand I do not belong to the body it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say because I'm not an eye I do not belong to the body it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear where would the sense of smell be? But in fact God has placed the parts in the body every one of them just as he wanted them to be. If they're all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. The Gospel of our Lord.
1: So this, this morning, I'd like to offer a, re- a reflection on not only this text, but I'd like to talk about two core values of our community. And before I do that, I'd like to invite us to just a, a practice of presence, of attentiveness. And whatever you bring into the room, it could be you know, lots of faith and expectation, or as we say, it could be lots of doubt, um, or maybe you don't identify with uh, with this tradition or these texts at all, and you're here uh, with a friend. Um, We just invite you to bring your full self to this moment and to the possibility that it could be sacred for you. Um, So just take a quick moment of quiet and as best as you know how, open your heart to our creator and to those who we share this room with. God, we thank you for the stillness of this moment and of this beautiful chapel And we open our hearts together to experience what we hope would be a transcendent moment, a moment where we can go beyond and above the concerns that occupy our imaginations and our heart space, that we'd find a sense of clarity, that we'd find a sense of levity, that we'd find a sense of love galvanizing in our being so that we can become the kind of people that we desire, that we see in the life of Jesus, that we see laid out for us in our holy scriptures, and that we see in the great lives of our tradition, those lives we call the saints. We pray that you would raise up within us a beauty and a holiness that would truly shine in this city and in this world. And we all have a sense that that's needed right now. And Do that important work in us through this moment. We pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So over the, over the past two weeks, I've talked about our why as a community, and I've talked about our what. Our why has to do with our motive, and our what has to do with our mission. Um, and if you weren't here the last couple of weeks, I encourage you to go back. To the podcast take a listen so that you can have a sense of this journey that we're on and where we're going over the course of the season of epiphany um our why we said was life it's life lived abundantly and fully that's the point jesus said multiple times but there's this one moment where he said i've come to with the purpose of offering life and experiencing life to the full And so that grounds us as a community. We're not here just to to go through the motions of something. We're not here uh, just to uh, feel good or feel better about ourselves for having done what we've done. We come here contending for life. And we believe that somehow what we do as a community and how we operate facilitates, encourages, and nourishes that life. And then last week we talked about the what, which for us is the love that we see in the life and teaching of Jesus. Love is our what. But as we have that motive of life and we have that mission of love, there are values that drive us, that give us a sense of, uh, values are cool because you know, we've been going through a sense of, uh, as a family, of like what are our values. And I have friends who are part of this church who even have like, fam- they created like a family crest that has almost like a, you know, a Harry Potter house, uh, you know, the qualities of the house. And, um, and, and I love that because what do values do? Values ground us when there's chaos. Values infuse our lives with a sense of meaning. They give us a sense of security when things feel out of, uh, off tilt. They give us a sense of belonging and w- w- knowing where we stand. And so as a church, we've embraced uh, five core values that we hope will, will move that mission of love forward, and that we hope will facilitate that experience of life that is our core motive. Our values are five. Unity, diversity, generosity, curiosity, and creativity. Now, I have scanned values of churches across the country ad nauseum. Like, I'm talking like deep dive, Google searches, calling my friends who work at Google, helping me get beneath the clutter, <laughs> trying to figure out, like, what are, what, what are the, the stated values of church communities around the, the country? And there are so many that, that overlap, right? And there are probably ones that would feel obvious to you, that are explicitly religious or explicitly spiritual, and our uh, staff and elders as we wrestled with values and what language to bring around those values, we came to these because even though they don't necessarily seem explicitly religious or spiritual in and of themselves, we believe these values are seen in the life of Jesus and that these values will actually make possible the sort of outcomes that we wanna see as a community The same outcomes that we saw as we read and and studied the life of Jesus, and the outcomes that we've seen from the saints before us. And so today I want to focus on two, unity and diversity. And it's sort of fitting that we focus on these two values today because it's MLK weekend, and these are values that are often experienced in tension with one another. The same tension that's represented in our text, the many and the one, right? The group and the individual. And to use the metaphor of our text, the body and the body part. It's a tension mirrored in the big questions we ask this weekend when we reflect on Dr. King's life and Dr. King's teaching. Questions around diversity like, why are we so segregated? Why are we so segmented? Why are we so divided? Now we all probably have our little armchair ideas and philosophies as to why that's the case. But I think, uh, and, and there are many professionals who are working hard to figure that out, and a lot of us are gleaning all the wisdom we can from those professionals, but I think we are all haunted by those questions when it comes to diversity and difference in the world. And when it comes to unity, we could ask the question differently. We could ask the question, what is it that holds people together? What is it that helps us forge bonds that create a sense of commitment, that create a sense of loyalty, that create a sense of goodwill to do good by another? And we could even ask questions about the shadow of that. Religious questions like, why are our churches so homogenous? Why do they look like a monolith? Why is Sunday morning at 11 a.m., the most segregated hour in America? Why are our friend groups so homogenous? Look back at the last 10 people that you texted and see if there's a pretty dominant current there. Now, there are upsides and downsides to diversity and unity, and this morning, I wanna talk about both. Think about Let's think about diversity for a moment. The upside of diversity is that we celebrate difference. Look, look in this room. There are a lot of similarities that you might look around and see um, you know, different ages. You might see a monolith of ages. You might look around and look at the faces and see different races, so-called. You might look around and see different genders. Those are the kind of things that visually present themselves to us. But there are other realities as well. And the upside of diversity is that it helps us appreciate the unique gifts that each of us bring as individuals and as groups. When we look at each other that way, we feel enlarged. We don't feel diminished. We feel enriched by each other's lives. The downside though is when our diversity or our differences present challenge or difficulty. It's when life becomes hard through misunderstandings, perhaps, or even through moments of aggression. And that can be sort of macro-aggressions that are on purpose, the the sort of wars that we experience, or things like the Holocaust, or things like bombings or shootings. But there are also the sort of exhausting experiences of a thousand micro-aggressions, moments when we were stereotyped, or taken for granted, or not seen, or heard, And in those moments, differences are often seen not through the lens of how they enrich us or how they make our lives more beautiful, but they're seen through the lens of our pain, which means they're seen through the lens of fear. And our instinct in the face of pain and fear is often to protect ourselves. And so these differences, when we have that mind space, when we are in that heart space, they feel like they might diminish us, they feel like they might threaten us. I started this practice on Twitter, which I'm looking for anything to redeem Twitter right now. And it's, it's, it's really hard. But uh, one of the things I, I've started doing is taking someone that I admire on Twitter and pretending that what they just said that I said yes to or I liked or I retweeted was said by somebody that I disdain, naturally, and from their perspective. And I got to tell you, it's really thrown me for a, for a loop. Because I realize how a lot of my uh, resonance isn't just purely because of an idea, it's it's very social. And that sociality is often king when it comes to what we approve of and what gets momentum in our lives. And when it comes to this value of diversity, we have to be aware of social dynamics for diversity to flourish. I wanna talk about unity. Unity is, is about bond, it's about group loyalty. When we know a strong bond, we see, feel this rush of belonging, right? When we feel a strong bond, we have a joy of meaning. We have this stability that comes with support from a group. I've told this story before when I was going through a staff transition at a, at a church, a large church, and I was uh, working in a youth ministry and I was working basically with my best friends. And then I was asked to take sort of a promotion, like to become a, a, more of like a, on the teaching team and to do more adult stuff. And uh, I was excited about that, but as you know, a young 20-something, I was being asked to move away from my social circle into this foreign space that I didn't know people and people's habits were different than mine and they talked different than I did and they had different interests. and. I was, I was kind of depressed by the move, although I knew it was a good move. And I was feeling the tension of that and my friends knew this about me. And so they took me to dinner and, uh, and they all sort of like were wearing jackets or whatever and we're all sitting around the table and then one by one they all start taking off their jackets and they're all wearing a T-shirt with this giant picture on their chest of me Sort of, it was it was like the, the, the church staff photo of the adult team. And it was like me in the middle looking very uncomfortable with all these like gray haired people. And uh, in that moment, I felt known. <laughs> I felt like, oh, these people know me, they get me. And, and that, that bond, that sense of belonging, that sense of being a part of a community helped me enter into this new space with more generosity, with more uh, grounding and it did all the things that we love about unity. But there's also what sociologists call the ethical paradox of unity. And that is that group loyalty can actually undercut the values that we often carry as individuals. From the book Divided by Faith, which I highly recommend, I read this quote, the paradox is that even if A group is made up of loving and unselfish individuals. The group transmutes individual unselfishness into group selfishness. This is seen across the board. It's not just a religious phenomenon. This is a social phenomenon. If I tell you my number one priority is to look out for me and to get mine, you might say, especially in this kind of church context, well, that's pretty selfish of you, Michael. But if I were to tell you, listen, I put my family's needs ahead of others. Like I prioritize my children before I prioritize other children. And if I have time and energy and margin beyond my children, then I'll I'll do as much as I can, but my kids first. My wife first, my spouse first, my partner first. You look at that with a, a kind of nobility probably. It's the same sort of selfish instinct that feels weird at an individual level feels like virtue at the level of the group. And that is a challenge when it comes to unity. In the name of unity, we can often undercut the virtues that we believe in our hearts and know in our tradition are good. And so we're sort of in this paradox and that's why these values are in tension with each other, diversity and unity. And there's no sense in pretending that this is easy. And there's no sense in living in the illusion that, you know, we are the answer to all of this. And that's why we hold these values dear, because they help guide us and navigate us when life's hard. I think the church can be an asset to you in a city like New York if it helps you navigate these sensibilities in a healthy way. The church can actually be an asset for you, not if it calls you into the safe and and uh, protective community that you know the dangerous city or the dangerous diversity out there is sort of quelled by the the serenity and the sameness and the like-mindedness in here. I think that's bypassing the problem. I think it's a stopgap, and it does help in the short run. It does provide the relief, uh, the rush, and the relief and the infusion of initial joy and help. I don't think it gets us where we're going or where we want to go. And I think most people have that sense of like, where I want to go as an individual, I, I'm just not sure if the way we think about group is getting us there in society. I think the challenge of healthy religion is to galvanize around bonds, yes. And to give a sense of belonging, yes. And even to create a sense of loyalty, yes. But these that facilitate wider and wider connections. These that broaden our sense of solidarity with other groups and with other people. One of my friends uh, is a professor at Yale. His name is John Hartley. And we had lunch last year. He was telling me about his, his latest work. And in his, in his study, he was surveying Christians across the U.S. And he had a sense that this would apply to other religious groups as well, but Christians were his focus. And he said that he found two basic dispositions among Christians. One of them was a sort of guarded disposition, and the other was a very open disposition. And rather than sort of feeling like, uh, well, let me just say before I get to that, think about Jesus for a moment. Would you say that Jesus was marked by a disposition of guardedness? Would you say that Jesus was marked by a disposition of openness? And I think it's important to ask that even of our text. Paul is writing this this letter to a community that is in tension, that is really heatedly divided. And the force of what he's writing here is to try to bring them together, right? to try to get them to lean toward each other rather than drift away and drift apart, which is the human tendency in the face of conflict. When you consider the life of Jesus, Jesus is uh, hes often, the sense that I have from my reading of Jesus is there's this sense of durability at the center. So Jesus can touch a leper who's unclean and that sort of protective system and the protective disposition that goes no 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 no, let's go through the right steps and make sure this person's cleansed ritually before we would approach jesus just like goes right to it touches heals and there's a sense of mixed reaction right there's outrage there's a sense of irreverence in jesus that he would violate that rule but what i see is jesus moved by the durability of compassion moved by the durability of mercy. He's not held back and held out of those spaces and those arenas because there's a sense of fragile holiness at the center. The holiness of Jesus is the holiness of mercy and it's so durable. This is why Jesus can say things like, don't, don't think that the things that you, you know, put into your body, like food or uh, ritual ceremonial cleansings, is what defiles you. Although we're kind of learning now, like our diet does matter. But this was a long time ago. So, But Jesus is saying that doesn't defile you, right? It doesn't, that doesn't make you unclean. What makes us unclean is the things that come from our heart. The malice, the greed, the envy, the lust, that sense of need for control to dominate. Like That is what defiles us. And what Jesus sees is not this like fragile center that needs to be guarded at all costs. Jesus sees this durability at the the core, the durability of God's love that can move into darkness, that can move into difficult and risky spaces and not be compromised. And I think for us as a community to balance these, these values of unity and diversity, we have to have that sense of openness. We have to have that sense that The way forward in the world will not be to to lock down and to protect and to take care of our own at the neglect or the expense of others. We need a sense of commitment to each other that facilitates bonds beyond us. And if our commitment to each other, if our bonds aren't producing bonds out there and deeper leaning into the tensions and the differences out there, then it's not doing us a service. It actually is compromising our call to be salt and light in the world. And this is why Jesus was always in tension with religious leaders who had that sort of protective instinct, who had that sense of just maintain order at all costs. And I don't want to demonize them. I mean, who wants chaos? We all want order. Of course, people want to protect order. And of course, people want to protect things that are valuable to them but it's like anything, I think we have to learn and evolve and grow and know that the things that work, they work until they don't work. And I think we have to ask the question, you know, Christianity's had a shot in the US, right? At making a difference. And here we are, you know, more than 50 years after the civil rights movement, and it's still the most segregated hour in the US. There, there's there's a, a lot of reasons why. And this book I've been reading, Divided by Faith, is, is very helpful in parsing that out. Basically says, it's not necessarily because people are racist. Like, the sum total of what we're experiencing as a culture isn't just the, the, the uh, addition of the individual parts. There's something else going on. And in this book, Divided by Faith, they basically say, it's actually the, the separation of church from state that led to the religion as sort of like pluralized and now competitive in like a marketplace that leads to homogeneity, it leads to the sameness. Because we all drift toward what we love and what we like and what makes us feel comfortable. And right now we're in a position where the church doesn't get any real support from the state, and so every church is sort of vying for audience, it's vying for client, it's vying for the market space. And to do that, they have to sort of distinguish themselves, mark themselves out as distinct from others, show and shine their brightness and like appeal to certain sensibilities and needs. And you say, that's, well, that sounds good, Michael, right? I mean, like, shouldn't you do that? And I think, yeah, I mean, this is a reality that we're in. But I also say, this is the reason that the the sociologists are teaching us that there's a natural drift that happens in that sort of environment that will just naturally drift toward what we like and what we enjoy. And because race is a part of our, our country's story, because racial division and, and, and uh, injustice is sort of woven into the fabric of who we are as a country, and even though we've done so much to repair that and to resolve that, it's such a hard line that it's what sociologists call a sort of consolidating factor. Let me just give an example. Like if, uh, if we, um, if you have a, a Korean lawyer and you have uh, a Mexican lawyer, they might not look at each other with the same disdain or with the same assumptions because they share something. They actually have something in common. It helps them move toward each other in ways that perhaps a, a Mexican lawyer and a Korean plumber would not be able to move toward each other. in. What, what, what happens is we, we all have these natural intersections, right, of commonalities. We have little things that we share. It could be sports. It could be the arts. It could be uh, culture. It could be food. It could be anything. And we find little bonds. We find little moments of camaraderie in those things. And the more things we have like that, the more ease with which our bonds are forged. But what do you do when there are controlling factors that sort of consolidate cultural distinctions? That's what they call the consolidating force of categories. And in the U.S., sociologists teach us, because of our country's history, race is the consolidating force. It's the most likely indicator that there's going to be a difference, a divergence, in a lot of those commonalities that we enjoy. That doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means like that is the line in our country, given our story and where we are. And there's a natural inertia. We will not naturally move toward each other we will naturally drift further apart, especially given the marketplace nature of church. And so what do we do? What do we do as a small congregation in New York City? How do we do our part to not only become the kind of people we want to become, but to make a kind of social impact? I think part of it is holding these values in tension and being willing to sort of galvanize around them. Sociologists tell us that churches do best when they have a, a strong them that they're up against. Churches do best when they have a bright center that's like, we are it. We're at the cutting edge of what God's doing. We're the, sort of the white hot burning center of the presence of God in the world. If you wanna be a part of something special, be a part of us. Like get caught up in this thing and let's go against, name the, the group or name the ide- ideology that actually works. It really does. Um, You know what they say generally doesn't work? Values like openness and inclusion and unity, that those often fail to galvanize because they feel like ambiguous and they're based on least common denominators and they often are like desirable but they don't have the heat underneath it. And I tell you in full transparency, I have no idea how we're gonna do this. I really don't. Part of me goes, we can't just be the church that goes, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, we've got all the answers, they're just a bunch of fools, and we're gonna you know, burn forward. But people love to give money to that. People love to belong to that. But what can we do? I can tell you, this is a place where you, you can belong. This is a place where you can be loved and you can be welcomed, and you can be accepted. And in this city, that's no small thing. This is a place where you can find meaning, only the meaning isn't that necessarily you're like part of the right group or the right tribe. And Listen, you might believe that we are, and that is good, but that can't be our galvanizer. That will only undercut what we know we need in this world. And so we have to look to Jesus, I think especially as a Christian church, we have to look to Jesus to say, what is that galvanizer? And for Jesus, the galvanizer was the love of God and the solidarity of humanity. We have to together, this is why I love the art that we create, the songs that we sing, the liturgy that we pray. I love the the table that we come to week after week. I love the themes that come out of our sacred scriptures because they all point us to the dignity of every human being the love of God for every human being, and our calling to not only love God, but to love God as we love our neighbor. Jesus taught us to even love our enemy, which means there's this centrifugal force to the love of God. It's always pushing us out, pushing us beyond. And our galvanization is to come together to encourage each other in that, to sort of light the fire of that, to celebrate when that's happening. You know what else this means? It means we normalize difference. We expect it. We count on it. And you don't always hear that in a church. Usually a church is, you know, the, the sense of unity is like we all believe the same things. But let me tell you, in my you know experience, I'm 40 years old, so I have some experience. It's not like I'm, a, I'm, I'm the, el- the elder among us. Maybe I am. I don't know. But it, it, let me just say, I have some experience in this, and it's fairly broad. And in, that, in my experience and in my time— I've never been a part of a church. Even churches that said, hey, we believe this. And I'd be like, wait, who's the we? Is that the senior pastor? Is that the staff? Usually I know there's a lot of disagreements among the staff. Is that like the, the core group, the leadership? I mean, if you were to in, in, give everybody a detailed survey of what they believe about everything, there would be a wide variety, even the most homogenous communities. And now you put us in New York City, and you put us in a context where we're like a, a, an interdenominational church, that has a sort of ecumenical instinct to come together despite our distinct traditions. And now, wow, we're really working with something challenging and beautiful. And so we just need to normalize the difference. You don't have to agree with me about everything. In fact, I hope you don't. I look at that as a celebration, as a beauty. You disagree with me? Well, let's talk about it. Let's enjoy coffee. And let's like, show honor and respect to each other as we process it. And the better I know you, maybe we'll raise our voice a little and have some fun with it. But let me just say, like, we got to normalize the difference and not be thrown off by it. Now, we are a Christian church. Like, we're not, we're not a Unitarian Universalist church. We're rooted in the Christian tradition. And part of our aim as a church is to, to move forward this story and this life that we see in Jesus. And we want that's what we ping off of. That's what we're tethered to. Like, we're not moving away from that. But in that, there's so much generosity. We know that this isn't going to be a home for everybody, but for those who call this home, we have that sense of bandwidth for difference. We have that bandwidth for going back and forth and learning. We do this on a number of fronts. Consider baptism, for instance. This morning, we dedicated a baby. And there are some of you come from traditions that don't baptize infants, you dedicate infants, right? And then When a a, a child grows to maturity and they have the ability to sort of like make of their own volition a sense of commitment or cross some threshold of faith, then they're baptized. Others of you come from a tradition where infants are baptized and that's considered holy and sacred. And then there's another threshold down the line where they can express commitment. And as a church, we say we hold to the beauty and the value of baptism, but we make provision for those two traditions. In our community, we baptize infants. In our community, we dedicate infants. In our community, we baptize people when they come to a place of a threshold of commitment. And we help people who have been baptized walk through thresholds of commitment. When it comes to communion, you know, there's like all kinds of views you might have heard uh, in in the Christian church. Uh, Christians don't always agree on what this this table means. Some in our tradition, in the big tradition, say, There's something so sacred here that, like, the substance itself of the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ. Some say, no, it's just a memory. Others are in between and say, no, there's like, maybe in the pores of the bread, the presence of God or the presence of Christ is with us. And we say, you want to belong to this community? You want to participate in this community? You don't have to have one or the other of those views. Bring your full self, bring your tradition, bring your understanding into this community and let's move toward each other as much as we can. I'm kind of an agnostic about it. I I think there's more than just remembering. I I hope that there's more than remembering. I think there's a real spiritual presence here. I'm not sure if we broke the bread apart and then did a, a DNA study, it would link it back to Jesus, but I don't know, I kinda like the idea of the mystery and the sacredness of that. So I'm, o- I'm open and I'm, I'm teachable and I, and I, I like the, the way that our different traditions have something to teach us. When it comes to sexuality, this is even more the case. You might have heard that Christians of different, uh, 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 that I think are, that I respect, that are smart, that hold the Bible in high regard and the tradition in high regard, come to different conclusions on sexual ethics. Wait, have you guys heard that, or am I the only person? <laughs> okay. And in our community, we make space for that. We, we don't say that there's this, this one sort of granular way that is the only way. But here's what we do. We say, every one of us should be wrestling with, what is a Christian sexual ethic? I mean, I think there's great starts, principles like, you know, is it consensual? Is, it, uh, is, is, is there harm involved? And that's a great start, but I don't think we can end there. We have to ask, how do we see the lens, the, our sexuality through the lens of Jesus and through the lens of our tradition? And people are coming to different conclusions, and I think we're sort of in this really dynamic time where if we could be in community together while we're processing this, we would actually enrich each other. We don't threaten each other. The early church did this all the time on many issues the early church was like okay started out as a largely jewish community and then the impetus of the community rooted in the life and teaching of jesus was the inclusion of outsiders and so all of a sudden you have this wave of gentiles coming in and they're like what do we do with this what do we do now about meat sacrifice to idols what do we do now about the practice of sabbath what do we do about sexual morality And they were wrestling with this and they'd come together and they'd discuss about it and they'd pray about it and they'd debate and then they'd come to some provisional conclusions say all right let's commit to this in the case of the you know the the Jerusalem council they said all right here what if we did this what if we said all right you don't have to be circumcised all the Gentiles exhale (sighs) you don't have to be circumcised but let's abstain from meat sacrifice to idols can we do that and the church is like, all right, that sounds reasonable. A little further down the road, the Apostle Paul is planting communities across the Mediterranean, and he's starting to learn and, and gather this experience, and he's taking the, the wisdom of this experience, and he's saying, you know, the more I think about it, it's like, I actually don't think that needs to be a central commitment. I think if your conscience is, is against it, then don't do it. But if your conscience doesn't condemn you, then eat it. I mean, what is an idol anyways? is his argument. And so you see this evolution through the wrestling and through the experience of conclusions being come to, and there's this beautiful sense of the church moving toward each other around the difference. And we rob ourselves of that when we just find our position, mark it out, and say you're either in or you're out. We're just going to define this way, and we're not going to engage meaningfully with the other position. And I think... We are in a position as a community to be uniquely positioned to hash this stuff out with generosity, to hash it out with patience, to hash it out with a sense of teachability. And I like it along relational lines. I don't know that the answer is going to be through the scholars who are researching and then presenting their white papers. I think this gets hashed out on the ground level through experience. I mean, that's how the early church experienced it. That's how Jesus experienced it. The kingdom of God runs along relational lines. And the more we can be connected to each other in our difference, even with our disagreement, the more we will be enriched. The more the Spirit of God who reverses the cycle of Babel, where everybody wanted to speak the same language and everybody wanted to do the same, had the same ambition, and God scatters them. It says all of that, that, that's empire, that's not unity. And then Pentecost happens. The Spirit of God comes upon the church. And people who speak different languages, who come from different cultures, are brought together, and their differences, though, are not washed away. And we need to be a community that doesn't just whitewash, literally doesn't whitewash differences, and instead... Allows them to, to transform us and help us to evolve as a community. Now, let me tell you something. You have to have a stomach for that. You can't, that doesn't come naturally. We know from sociology, naturally, we just want to go toward like mindedness, like instincts, like preferences. And so it takes, it kind of goes against the grain a little bit. And here's what I want to hold out to you this isn't just all hard stuff, there is a reward on the other side of the work. There is a meaning on the other side of it. There's a a stronger stability than what you'll find just with your uh, like-minded, like-habited communities. There is something on the other side of the valley of challenge that diversity presents that's worth going after. And that's what we call you to as a community. So we're not bothered when you come to us and say, did you hear? that someone else in my small group believes X, Y, Z? And we're like, oh, wow. Well, Did you get curious about it? Did you ask them about it? In our family, we always say, like, curiosity before judgment. Like, you're not allowed, like, judgment, we all make decisions, we all make judgments, but you're not allowed to go there until you've gone through the valley of curiosity. Ask good questions. How did you come to that position? Like respect someone and honor them to go, like, they're, just not, they're not just idiots. I mean, maybe they are and you'll get to there through the process, but, but we want to give each other the benefit of the doubt that we're not just idiots and give each other that honor and respect. Like, how did you come to that view? How did you come to that? And let me tell you, the power of people's stories, the power of people's experiences will move you. That's what I love about New York. I've been so shaped and molded by the stories I've encountered in New York. It has not diminished me, it's enlarged me. And my Christian faith, my connection to the Christian tradition has actually helped me navigate that diversity, helped me navigate that difference in a way where I feel like I can be faithful to what I see in the life of Jesus and I feel like we can move the ball forward as a human species. And I don't think that's a small thing. And so when it comes to unity and diversity, we invite you. Our unity is in our humanity. Our unity is that we're created by God and loved by God. There's no us in them. There's only us. Someone wants to be a part of us? Come on. And guess what we're going to do? We're going to try to move toward other groups. And that's why we do our our ecumenical work. We have our John 17 uh, meetings in Advent. We move toward the Catholics. We're here partnering at General Seminary. We move toward the Episcopals. We we, uh, partner with the the John 17 group itself with Charismatics and Pentecostals. We move toward them. A lot of us have evangelical backgrounds. We don't reject our backgrounds. We include and transcend if we need to. But we're moving toward each other all along. We don't know what it means to have us and them. Our ethic is there's only an us if we see it through the lens of Christ. And that's the invitation of these values of unity and diversity. I have a lot more to say about that. Guess what, though? We have years and years to continue talking and working this out. But I just want to be really clear from the start that unity is important. We do want to move toward each other, but we don't want to move in toward each other in ways that undercut our commitments and moving toward those beyond us. And our diversity is essential. And we should always feel haunted if we look around the room or we look around our social circles or we look at our last 10 text messages and it just looks just like us. And so may God give us the grace to endure long sermons like this that lead us to 12 o'clock. May God give us the grace to deal with each other. And as we come to this table, may God send us out into the city, ringing in our ears, this binding, unifying love of Christ that's strong at the center and can take great risks and can make great sacrifices. Amen.